This is the Hoboken Grace Podcast. Whether you're in the car or enjoying a walk, we hope you're having a great day. Just like every weekly conversation, we hope today's message deepens your relationship with God and builds into your life in a helpful way. For access to our full podcast library, visit HobokenGrace.com or our app. Well, again, good morning and welcome. If I haven't had the chance to meet you, my name's Chris. I'm lead pastor here at Hoboken Grace. And for the last couple of weeks, we have been moving through this conversation, what keeps us from Christmas? Today, that answer is about 24 hours. About 24 hours. Are, are you excited for Excited for Christmas? Is it starting to sink in a little bit? Getting excited? It's, it's interesting. The busyness, the busyness of Christmas usually keeps me from getting excited about it until the day before. And my wife's family is Latin, so Christmas starts in about six hours. Some of you know what I'm talking about, right? Christmas is on Christmas Eve. You know that. And and, and so as soon as these, the next service ends, that excitement will begin to really build for me because it's here and, and, and you get to be able to experience it with, with all of those around you in and, and all sorts of different ways. And, and as we come together this final time in this conversation, I want, to, I want to take one last look at, okay, what is it that keeps us? from what Christmas is all about. And from the beginning, we, we've looked at this passage in Matthew chapter one, where it says this, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. From the beginning, we focused in on this reality, this reality that Christmas is all about the fact that God wanted for you to be with him and he wanted to be with you. That it's not about presence in the way of gifts, but it's about presence in the way of God's presence in our lives. And we're trying to lean into that. And we're trying to pursue that. We don't just want to know that about Christmas. We want to experience that with Christmas. But, but one of the things that we, that we see when, we, when God steps into our lives with scripture is that, is that while he's working for that to be a reality, there are other things that are working to keep us from that. And just as there's good, there's also evil. And just as God is pursuing each and every one of you, and I believe it doesn't matter really who you are, where you've been, or what you've done, that God is actively pursuing you. He wants for you to know his presence. But just as he's doing that, there's also one who, who is working to keep us from that. And for the last couple of weeks, we've been working through how he does that because there's a consistent way in which the enemy works to keep us from the presence of God. Not that it's not available to you. It's available to you, but to keep us from actually experiencing it, from knowing it. And as you move through the biblical narrative, he, he works consistently in three ways. I've said this from the beginning. I'll, I'll say it again. All temptation falls into one of three categories. It's all based on one lie that God's holding out on you, but it falls into to one of three categories. And so for the last couple of weeks, we've been moving through those because these are the ways in which he moves and works in our lives, the lies that he brings into our lives in order to keep us from experiencing the one who loves us most. And today I want to build on the two that we've previously looked at John captures them best in one moment in the book of 1 John as he's writing to the church. And he says this, he says, do not love the world nor the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the father is not 
in him for all that is in the world. And then he breaks down all of the, in other words, all of these things that are pulling us away from the father, all of it, he breaks it down into these three categories. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the father, but is from the world. The world is passing away and also it's lust, but the one who does the will of God continues to live forever. And so he walks us through these three things. And in week one, we looked at the first one, which is the lust of the flesh. And the lust of the flesh is the desire to feel. I want to feel a certain way. I want to feel relaxed. I want to feel excited. I want to feel joy. I want to, it can be whatever. It's all sorts of different feelings, but it's the desire to feel. And so we begin to, we begin to take that into our own hands and we're pursuing pleasure instead of following the father. And we realize this really sometimes painful truth that behind every treasure, because those things are good things, but behind every treasure there can be a tyrant. And all of a sudden, something that's good becomes something that's destructive. And, and all of a sudden, that begins to become the primary pursuit of our life instead of what can actually bring joy. And the one who wants to actually bring joy. And then last week we built on that and we looked at the next one, the lust of the eyes. This is not the desire for pleasure, but the desire for, for possession. I want to have. And so we clamor to, to accumulate and look at, look at my stuff and we try to find security or we try to be loved because of what we have. And we start to worship something other than the Father. And good things become, become God things in our lives. And they become idols. And, and it keeps us from that experience. In reality, the experience who, is, who has given every good thing to us that we have And today, I want to build on that and look at the third one. And these three, as I've said, they're interesting because you find them in the garden when Adam and Eve first step out of relationship with God. You find them at the temptation of Jesus. You find them here in 1 John. It's consistent throughout the biblical narrative that he's saying, okay, pay attention to these three things. And today, I want to look at that third one, which is the pride of life. And th this, this is the desire for position, the pride of life. I want to be. I want to become something. And when you look at these three, well, all of us interact with them a little bit differently. And all of us feel certain ones stronger than others. And so some of you, you're feeling people and that just, that, that's what drives you. You're just constantly, there's just, you've, you have strong feelings. My oldest son, he feels everything strong. It's just, it's just like my wife, she feels everything strong. And I'm like, whoa. But, so, but they, they're feeling people, like they're very strong in terms of how they feel. And, and, and so some of us are driven by that more than, than anything else. So for some of us, it is that possession I want to have. But then there are those that it's all about position. And, and the interesting thing about position people is that they almost always look down on the other two. I just say, oh, you're weak and you're giving in to that. Not me. I'm becoming something. I'm making something of myself. Religion loves position people. 
I'm making myself righteous. I'm making myself good. Look at what I'm becoming. Don't just think about this because this, not only do we interact with all three of them differently, but we all interact with this one a little bit differently. This has everything to do with pride. It's anything in your life, and usually the position thing works like this. Whatever it is that you value, it's you working to become the best at it or at least better than all of them. And so it's not necessarily that you're trying to climb the corporate ladder for that to be the position. It can be something else. I remember growing up, I had someone who was very close to me and, and for them, what they valued was not the corporate success thing. What they, what they valued was actually anti-success thing. But they were the best at it. I mean, they were the best at it. I have never met anyone more proud of their humility. I mean, they talked about how humble they were all the time. And so it's not necessarily positioned the way that we think about it in terms of corporate or worldly success. It's, it's, it's anything in your life where you say, oh, my, look at what I've become and look at who I'm above. Sometimes it's control. And, and the reality is, is that when you come to the story of Christmas, the story of Christmas is filled with this idea of position. And, and as you move through the story, you see people clamoring for, for position, really in, in two situations or instances in really significant ways. So we don't have time to, to walk through the story in Matthew, but one of the things that happens when Jesus is born is that sometimes they're called the wise men. They're these individuals who see a star as a symbol that the new king of the Jews has been born, and so they come to see Jesus. Now, interestingly enough, when you read through the story, they find out, okay, the new king of the Jews has been born. They see the sign. They go to find that king. But when they arrive, remember, the nation of Israel is oppressed. They've been conquered by the Roman Empire. And, and, and so they're, they're still allowed to live somewhat free, but they're paying crazy taxes. To, and, and so they're, they're oppressed. When the wise men show up, do you know what they do? They go to the oppressor. If I once had the opportunity to interact with this story with someone who comes from a persecuted place. And they said, you know, when you interact with people who've been persecuted about the story of the wise men, they hate the wise men. Because they ask the question, you know that they're persecuted, you know that they're oppressed. Why would you go to their oppressor and tell him that a new king has been born? He says, at best, it was a foolish decision. At best. Careless. And so they go to Herod and say, hey, we saw a sign that the new king of the Jews has been born. He says, really? Really? And immediately, what does Herod begin to do? He begins to clamor for position. He goes to another group of people 
who also clamor for position. He goes to the religious leaders, and you would think, okay, the oppressor is now coming to the religious leaders, and he asks them, he says, this new king of the Jews, where is he supposed to be born? Now, if you're the religious leaders and you're talking to the oppressor, do you tell him? No, you don't tell him. What is he going to do? You know what he's going to do. He has a reputation for this. You would never tell him. But they do. They say, oh, he's supposed to be born in Bethlehem. Great. Herod proceeds to kill every child under the age of two in Bethlehem and the surrounding area. Jesus narrowly escapes. What's that story all about? It's all about position. Herod's clamoring. He's got to make sure he keeps his position. Why do the religious leaders tell him that it's Bethlehem? Got to keep my position. They're holding on to their position. It's interesting, you read through the story and everybody's clamoring for position, except for one. Luke chapter 2. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him, and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Everybody's clamoring for position except for one, and he walks away from it. He has the position. The king of kings and he walks away, he walks away from the glory, he walks away from it all. And he really does walk away from it all. He becomes a baby. You have no position. Unless you're, well, it is a first, first-time parents, and I have met some first-time parents that <laughs> worship that baby. <laughs> have you met first? I don't think that's how it's working out with Jesus in a manger. When you think about it, you become completely vulnerable, completely dependent. He walks away from it all. Gives up all position. And Jesus doesn't just demonstrate this in this one moment. He talks about, when it comes to these three, when it comes to the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, I think that he actually talks the most about the third. And you see it most frequently as you move through his ministry. Remember I told you, all three of these, they show up at the garden. Well, what is the, what is the temptation 
as it pertains to the pride of life in the garden. What, what is it that it says that he says you can be? He says you can be like God. And then I also said that all three of them, they show up at the temptation of Christ. Let me take you, let me take you there, Luke chapter, Luke chapter 4. And in this moment, Jesus is beginning his public ministry, and he goes out into the wilderness, and he fasts, and he's spending time with God. And as he's doing that, he's actually tempted. So as he's experiencing the presence of God, the enemy comes to take him from the presence of God to stop that. Listen to me. There's nothing that the enemy wants to kill more, that he wants to stop more in your life than your experience of God's presence. Your understanding of his love. And so he comes to Jesus and he comes to Jesus as he always does in these three ways. The first one, turn the stone into bread, the desire to feel. The second one, listen, I can give you everything. It's the desire for possession. And then you come to the third one. It says this. It says, the devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, and he quotes from the Psalms, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And so this time, the enemy comes, and he actually uses prophecy. He's really good at using good things. Everything he uses as you move through these three is a good, it's a good thing. And even when you look at this moment, again, he's, he's utilizing something that will eventually become Jesus's. Because he's saying, listen, you, you need to let everybody know who you are. And so jump off of here and let them see. Let them see who you actually are. Let them see your actual position. Step into the position that is rightfully yours for people to worship you. This is, I'm not asking you to worship me anymore. The enemy is really tricky with this. He said, I'm not asking you to worship me anymore. Let's, let's just make sure people worship you. Let them see who you are. Jesus answered, it says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. So he says, here, I want for you to jump off and let people see who you are. They'll worship you the way you deserve to be worshiped. And Jesus says, don't put the Lord your God to the test. Now, let me clarify this because sometimes I think people misunderstand this. And they think, okay, listen, you never put God to the test. And this is, a, this is a little bit interesting because the reality is, is that God constantly calls you to test him as he's asking you to follow him. There's another way that sometimes this passage is misused is that there's one place in the Old Testament where, it's, where God says, listen, you can test me as it pertains to generosity. And I promise you, if you test me in, in generosity, I'll be generous back to you. And people will say, this is the only place where God says you can test him. No, 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 no. That's not actually true. God's constantly stepping into our lives and saying, listen, follow me and I will be faithful. Follow me and I will be faithful. You can see. Come follow me. I'll be faithful. You can see. You can test it. You'll be... I'll be faithful in that. 
It's the, he's not saying, okay, you can never really test whether or not God's going to be true to his promise or God's going to follow through as you're following him. What he's saying is this, you, as they come to this, as they come to this moment, Satan, the enemy presents to Jesus a good plan. It's a good plan. People will know who he is. That's a good thing, right? It's a good plan. People will worship him the way that he deserves to be worshiped. That's a good thing, right? And Jesus says, okay, okay, yeah, yeah. You have a good thing, but here's the thing. It's not God's thing. You have a, okay, yeah, yeah, that's a good plan, but that's not God's plan. And so when he says, don't put the Lord your God to the test, what he's saying is this, don't come up with your own good plan and then ask God to execute it. Putting God to the test is when you come up with the plan and then ask God to bless it. God all the time says, no, no, you can follow me in my plan. And you can test it. I'm faithful. I'll be true. But don't, don't come up with your good plan and then expect me to execute it. And we do this all the time. We do this all the time. How many of you are planners? There's way more planners in this room than that. I can tell you that. Way more planners than that. Some of you are good planners. You're really good planners. And we come up with these great plans. God, I got great plans. I got great plans for my life. How many of you have a great plan for your life? Yeah, you got a great plan for your life. You got it worked out. You know how it should work out. You got a great plan for your life. Some of you here are parents. How many of you have a great plan for your kid's life? I got a great plan for my kid's life. And we come to God and we say, God, I got a great plan. I just need you to execute it. God, if you would just... This is a really telling question when it comes to this. How much of your prayer life is about God executing your plan? How much time do you spend in your relationship with God trying to get God to execute your plan? How much time do you spend trying to figure out his plan? Even if you were just looking at your prayer life. How much time is spent asking him about his plan? How much time is spent asking him to execute your plan? Listen to me, this is really important because some of you are really, really frustrated with God because he's not executing your plan. Here's the reason why. It's not actually the best plan. It's not actually the best plan. He has, he has something better in store. 
And so Jesus says, no, no, you don't put the Lord your God to the test. You don't come up with your plan of how... He says, no, I'm going to trust him with the plan. And yeah, there's going to come a time when I'm worshipped the way that I deserve to be worshipped. But I'm going to let him decide when that is. So he says it this way in John chapter 8. He says, if I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My father whom you claim as your God is the one who glorifies me. He says, I'm not worried. I'm not interested in finding my own position. I'm I'm not interested in making it happen myself. I trust him with that. I trust him with the plan. I trust him with my life. I trust him with my honor. He tells a parable about this once as well in Luke chapter 14. It says, when he noticed, talking about Jesus, when he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor. For a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this man your seat. Then humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place so that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all your fellow guests. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And so he says, listen, on this journey, rather than you pursuing your plan and how and your position he says no, no I want you to trust the father with it and the, gr- the great thing about this parable is that this parable is the story of Christmas what does he do on Christmas he shows up to the party and where does he sit the end of the table And for 30 years, no one even knows who he is. Nothing. No position. No honor. No glory. And then one day the father steps in and says, I need you to move up. And he begins his ministry. He gives his life on the cross, and the Father says, I need you to move up again. You're going to sit here at the head of the table. You're going to sit here. The parable is the story. It's the story of Christmas. And Jesus, Jesus says, this is where life, this is where life is found, and this is how you find the life that you were created to live. Not because you come up with the plan of how it will happen, but because you trust him with it. And this is so phenomenally significant because 
Because for some of you, you, you've spent your whole life trying to execute your plan. And what it is that you're going to become and who it is that you're going to become. And you think, and this is, all of us think this. Because even as I say this, this idea of, of okay, I'm going to give over my plan to him. Even as I say that, people will say to me, wait, 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 wait. Because all of us think this. We think, well, I, I have to work for my position. I have to, I, I have to get ahead. I have, I have to execute my plan. And, and here's, here's what's behind it. We think, if I don't, who will? I mean, if you don't watch out for you, who will? If I don't watch out for me, who will? And so I have to execute my plan. I, I, I have to work for that position. I have. And all of us, we think that. And then Jesus steps into our story and he walks away from all of the position. And listen to me, listen to me. Why does he come that way? Why does he give up all position? Why does he come that way? Listen to me. It's because he's saying to all of us, watch this. Watch this. I know you're clamoring for position and I know you're clamoring to execute your plan and I know you're clamoring to make it all work and, and clamoring to hold it all together and I know you're clamoring for control. I, 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 know, I, I know you think that's the only way to do it. I know you think you have to do it that way. Watch this. I'm gonna give it all up. I'm never gonna execute my own plan. I'm just gonna follow his. Watch what happens. And he says to each and every one of us, not just with his words, but with his life, listen to me. There is someone else who has your back. There is someone else. Who's watching out for you. There is someone else who has a plan for you. And it's better than yours. But you have to give up on your pursuit of the position and trust him with it. And it begins, listen to me, listen to me. It begins with giving up this position, the position of God. And you say, I'm not trying to be God. Really? Who's the one who's going to make it all work in your life? Who is it that you trust most?
Who is it? Who is it that decides what's true and what's right? Is it you or is it him? What was the lie of physician in the garden? You can be like God. One of the most significant ways one of the most significant ways that the enemy uses this in our lives to keep us from the presence of God is that he just keeps us thinking, no, you're the one who figures it out. You're the one who can make it work. Listen to me. You can keep trying to be God, but it's miserable. You weren't created for it, and you're not going to be able to pull it off. And here's the really great news. There is an actual God, and he cares about you, and he has your back. And he's not just interested in executing some plan. He's interested in executing the best plan. But you got to give him the position that's rightfully his. And trust him with the position he's going to give you. Will you do that today? Maybe some of you for the first time, or maybe some of you have given it to him before, but you've taken it back. Will you do that today? This Christmas Eve to say, I don't want your position anymore. I'm stepping out of that position. That's yours, God. And I trust you with whatever position you give me. Because I know your plan's better. Will you bow your heads with me? I just want to encourage you to have this conversation with God. Heavenly Father, I don't want to be God in my life anymore. I want you to have that position. I want you to be Lord of my life. And I trust you with your plan for me. In Jesus' name, amen.